Well, good morning to everybody out here on the lot. Of course, good morning to everybody online as well. And yes, in a week plus, two weeks really to be exact, we're going to be meeting finally in the pub, in the hub, and on the net, because I'm using old terminology, the net. And uh, so we're going to have all kinds of options for you. So as you're kind of looking at your fall and everything else, we want to make sure we're covering all those bases, because it's important for us as a church to keep fighting to be a church and what we do and how we do things. And so just creative ways all the way around to do this. Looking forward to that. That's going to be awesome. So that's number one. Number two, don't forget we have an app and on the app are all sorts of things as well as notes for Sunday morning. And today you want to have your notes as well. If you'd like to follow along that way, it's a great way to do it. All the verses are in there. Some different points are in there as well as we're looking at the book of Ruth. And in today's kind of installment, we're in chapter three. So you can tap to that. You can open to that, whatever you want to do. And today I was trying to figure out, what do I title this? And so I titled it, A Girl's Guide to Picking Up Drunk Guys. So... I didn't make that up though. It's in the book itself. I'm not, last week was dumpster diving. That was in the book too. So I don't make things up. I just coax things out a little bit. So with that said, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray for us right now. Cause really with a title like that, we need prayer. And, uh, and then we're going to jump right into it in chapter three. We're going to see what God has for us today. So let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that your gospel is displayed throughout your word. And that your heart for how we are to be as your people is displayed throughout your word, both in the very easy, comfortable, safe passages, and then also in the ones that are messy and show the the tragedy and the hardship of life. And yet in there, your good news still comes forth. Your deep love comes forth. And I pray today that we will see how radical your love is displayed in the lives of people uh, as they navigate the challenges of life. And so I pray that we are students so that we might be practitioners, that we're not just students to learn and move on, but rather we're students to learn and then to do. And so help us to do that, Jesus, by your grace and in your strength and your good name. Amen. All right, so Luke, or Luke, I'm back to Luke already. Ruth, chapter three is where we're at today. And uh, here's the thing about this particular little four chapter book that I love. Uh, there's a couple of things. One is I love the fact that I like to use the word scrappy when it comes to this book because that is the characters that are in the book. They're scrappy, they're tenacious, they're focused, they have this display of faith and they do so in such a way that when you analyze their lives and their actions, it's easy from one point of view to say, wow, I don't know if that's very godly. But sometimes in the quest to truly be godly, some people are going to look and go, ah, that may be ungodly. But their heart is actually to honor God and to be about the business of God. That's in there. And so as they do some things, what they're doing is they're simply saying, you know what? This is how life is for me. This is what I have to work with. And as I try to work with the messiness and the brokenness of life, I'm going to do my very best to seek God and honor God when the conditions are not perfect which I don't know about you, but I find that oftentimes in life, that's exactly how we have to navigate. Not everything is so easy, so clear, so simplified. And so we're trying to figure out, I just want to honor you, God, when stuff is gray and and difficult to navigate. And that's one of the reasons I love this book. The other reason I love it is that when you really look at it from high orbit, you see how it mimics and mirrors much of what Jesus will emphasize several centuries later. 
right? His heart of this idea of understanding the spirit of the law and not simply the letter of the law. And more deeply in that, the spirit of the law that emphasizes this word hesed. We learned about this a little bit more last week. It's this Hebrew word that we have a hard time translating into English, but it communicates this idea of a self-giving love, this radical love of neighbor, even if it costs oneself. That's hesed. It's a loving kindness that says, I want you to thrive even if I do not thrive. I want your life to be better even if my life is a little bit worse for it because again, that's a self-giving love. The very essence of the gospel is a self-giving love. For God so loved, he gave, right? Well, the book of Ruth is a, for some people, so loved other people that they give. That's the essence of this idea of hesed. And so as a quick recap, what we saw in chapter one is that life fell apart in every conceivable way. And from that, really what I think is the main character, Lady Job, her name's Naomi. She goes from being sweet to by the end of the chapter saying, I'm bitter, I'm angry, God's against me. He doesn't look out for me. His hesed is departed from me. And so she's in that space. But then her Moabite pagan daughter-in-law comes into the scene and says, no, I'm gonna be loyal to you even though you feel God is not loyal to you. I'm going to embrace your God even though you think your God has vacated your life. And so she steps into this space and from that begins to do things that sees this transformation in Naomi. And she goes from being bitter back to being sweet. And she has this sense that God is not against her, but maybe God is in fact for her, working in the margins, underneath kind of the contours of life, not in the obvious on top ways, but in the undercarriage of people's decisions and actions. And so there's this renewed sense of hope in Naomi. And it's because people are displaying the Hesed of God, the loving kindness of God, the loving your neighbor as yourself, and even more kind of love of God, right, in their actions. Ruth is doing it in her actions. Boaz is doing it in his charity. And because of this, as we go into chapter three, what you see is Naomi wants to get in on this too. She's like, they're expressing hesed and they're expressing hesed. And I don't want to be so captivated by my own bitterness, my own anger, my own frustration, my own problems that I miss out on being a displayer of hesed. So I want to show hesed as well. She wants to be the conduit of God's love and grace and care in the world. And so if you're taking notes in our app this morning, it starts with one, number one in your notes, looking for love in all the wrong places. Yes, I think somewhere that's a song, but here it is a title for this first point. So we start in chapter three, verse one, and it says, one day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you, or literally in Hebrew, I found rest for you so that you will be provided for. Now, again, if you recall back to chapter one, uh, Naomi, as she's leaving Moab, the sworn enemies of Israel, she tells her daughter-in-law, who's a Moabite, she says, go back to your own family. Go back to your own kin and people. And perhaps you'll find somebody that's willing to marry you, even though you're shown to be barren. You're obviously poor. Like you're not a catch in that culture, but maybe you'll find somebody will take you. And from that, she says, you will find rest. So Naomi tried early on to get Ruth to go find rest back with her own people, but that didn't happen because Ruth was like, no, I'm committed to you. I'm following you. I'm gonna stick with you no matter what. And so I'm going to forgo my personal rest and be basically rest to you, Naomi. No matter what it takes or what we get into, 
I'm going to do life with you. Well, from this, Naomi feels a sense of burden because now her Moabite pagan daughter is in a country that doesn't favor Moabites, doesn't favor women, certainly doesn't favor barren and poor women. And so she feels the burden that if my daughter stays here, I'm not going to live forever. Once I die, she's doomed. Like her life is not going to go right if I'm not at least here to be some kind of a buffer as an Israelite woman woman in Israelite territory. So she's like, I've got to find rest for my daughter-in-law because that's going to be security. That's going to be provision. And that's going to offer her at least a potential future that has some humanization behind it as opposed to the fact that her future would be very degrading if she doesn't find some kind of marital rest. And so Ruth and Naomi are looking out for one another in different ways. And Naomi knows that, again, Ruth's future is bleak apart from some kind of husband in the region. So she's working overtime to come up with a plan, and she comes up with a plan starting in verse 2. She says, Boaz is a close relative of ours. He's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his younger women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now we're going to stop there for a second because there's a couple of things that are kind of worthy to note as uh, she says this. The first I want you to know, thing you want you to notice is that uh, Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz is a relative. She, she doesn't use the term kinsman redeemer here, and that's on purpose because that's a legal term. That idea of the kinsman redeemer has legal expectation and implication behind it. And Naomi is not thinking about Boaz as a kinsman redeemer to Ruth. She's more simplified. She's looking at him saying, you know what? He's like this cousin of ours. He's a relative and he's been really nice to you. And maybe because he's a relative, he's going to show pity on us. And because of that, maybe, maybe he's willing to have some kind of relationship with you because he's a family member. This might work out. So it's not the kinsman redeemer that Naomi has in mind. And we're going to get into what that kinsman redeemer idea is here in a minute. But for now, just divorce yourself of that and say, Naomi is just looking at a other family member saying, maybe he could be a catch. That's the first thing. The second thing is that she mentions the threshing floor. And so it's the end of the barley harvest, as we learned last week. Uh, they've gathered all of that, that barley and wheat and everything else. They're bringing it outside of the city to this place called the threshing floor where they put it down on the ground and either small animals kind of walk over the top and separate like the kernels from the husks or they'll use an ox with a cart or whatever else, but they go around and around. They separate all of that out and then they use like shovels or pitchforks and they fling all the stuff into the air and the chaff blows away in the wind and what's left is the kernels and then you gather those up into piles and you have your harvest for the year. That's the setting. But here's the deeper setting to the threshing floor in that time period. It's the time of the judges. It's toward the tail end of the judges. Ugly time, immoral time, just not healthy from a spiritual or ethical perspective. And so there was this kind of reputation for the threshing floor, that it was a place where at the end of the harvest, you were so excited that you were gathering into your barns. It was a big party, but it was a bit like a frat party. So there was a level of drunkenness involved with the threshing floor. There was a measure of immorality connected to the threshing floor. This has been well documented by many scholars to show that that environment was not like, oh, everybody's just on their best behavior in that space. Now, oftentimes that was a place where you went, that's where bad things happen. That's a frat party environment there. 
what happens at the threshing floor doesn't always stay at the threshing floor. That's, that's part of what we're dealing with. And so you have to understand the context uh, that this social environment would have. Outside of town, things can happen that might be a little crazy, a little bit debaucherous. Don't know about the threshing floor so much. But it was a party spot, right? Here's why this is important. Naomi knows that. She's not foolish. It's an agricultural community that has, unfortunately, some pagan roots related to agriculture, and that has all sorts of connotation to it. But it's in that context that now the story gets messy. Verse 3. She says, Now do as I tell you, Ruth. Take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down and then go uncover his feet and lie down there and he will tell you what to do. Now there's a lot to unpack there and I don't just mean the main luggage. I'm talking like your carry-ons, your toiletry bag. There's a lot to unpack in this little thing here. And so here's what you want to know. First of all, this move and plan on the part of Naomi, it's gutsy. And it's gutsy because again, what is Ruth? She is poor, she is barren, she is foreign. In that world, she is not a catch for a good Jewish man. She's just not. She brings nothing to the table. The way it was measured is your value and your worth as a woman was based on your ability to produce sons. She does not fill any of those opportunities or options based on what she's kind of shown in her life up to this point. And so this is why Naomi sends her under the cover of darkness. Because if this doesn't go right, it's going to make Boaz look bad. And so she's like, I want you to go kind of secretively so you don't make Boaz look bad. So first of all, it's gutsy. Second of all, it's unconventional. Women were not the matchmakers of this culture. The men were, right? Women were the property of men. Men brokered the deals to move women around. For Naomi to be doing this is outside of her kind of her space. It's not her lane. And for Ruth to be the tool by which she goes and sort of pops this idea, this is super unconventional as well. So all of this has risk involved from just a cultural perspective because again, this is not the way things were done. Third, and this is where it gets a little uncomfortable, this plan is sensual. Naomi is leveraging Ruth's sex appeal. She's hoping that she shows up and Boaz is like, swipe right, all right, this is, I like this right? That, that's the space. When you go back and you read Proverbs, you actually see that the sensual woman, the woman that is seductive, it uses these same descriptors as Naomi encourages for Ruth right here. So like I said, it's a story in which not everything is clean and neat and tidy like we want it to be. It's a messy life with sometimes messy solutions. But this is the way that she sends her. Fourth, this whole thing is questionable. Because we're going to see just in a little while later that it talks about after he had eaten and had been drinking, he was in, quote, good spirits. So here's a guy that's been drinking at the threshing floor. It's already a place known for a bit of partying. Do you really think it's a good idea to take a woman and have her go with her sex appeal to a guy who's been drinking? I mean, there is is some questionable decision-making there, right? Because he's going to have some level of buzz and what the mother-in-law is basically saying is once he's been kind of buzzing for a little bit and he kind of falls asleep why don't you just slip in next to him where he's sleeping what what parent would give that advice to their kids hey you're going off to college you should go to a frat party after they've been drinking and crawl into bed with somebody but don't worry it's gonna go fine for you like like that's the concept here like it just is so strange you're like is that in the bible it's in the bible 
But even more than being questionable, it's downright dangerous. And it's dangerous because, hey, think about it. Again, it's not smart to take somebody that's using their sex appeal and sending them to a man that's been drinking. That's just not smart. The second reason it's not smart and it's dangerous is because if you go back and think about the history of how Moab was established as a country, it was when Lot got drunk, passed out, and his daughters decided to procreate with him because he had been drinking so they can continue his line. And now a Moabite woman is going to approach an Israelite that's been drinking and it's going to look really provocative and really broken and everybody's going to be like, wow, that reminds us of Moab, not Israel. That's dangerous. And it's dangerous because here's a woman going out into the dead of night with this kind of aura of sex appeal and she could run across any number of individuals between there and the threshing floor. So all of this is just a messy, messy story. Morally, it's messy. Practically, it's messy. Socially, it's messy. It's shocking. But Naomi is working with what she's got. She cares for her daughter-in-law and she knows the conditions. And she's like, when I look at this versus the alternatives, the alternatives are worse. So Ruth, I want you to go do this. I want you to have rest. I know how your life will turn out if this doesn't work. I mean, in all honesty, the reality is Ruth's future is probably being a prostitute or owned by somebody for that purpose. is remarkably high based on our conditions. And Naomi's just painfully aware of this. And so Naomi is moving forward with what I'm gonna call messy, hesed-laced faith. God, you know our conditions. You know our circumstance. I don't see another way. God, I'm trusting you to act and move on behalf of my daughter, whom I love and loves me. Right? It's an amazing story with all kinds of risk behind it. So what does Ruth do with this gutsy, unconventional, sensual, questionable, dangerous plan? She says in verse five, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Man, that's faith. That's loyalty. That's love. Even though it's messy and strange. So verse seven, after Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of a pile of grain and he went to sleep. And then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and she laid down. Now, this idea of uncovering his feet uh, has had a lot of ink spilled over it. Like, people are like, okay, is this a euphemism for something more sensual? Like, she uncovered his feet, if you know what I mean. Like, that's what people have wondered about this. Here's the thing about uncovering his feet. You ready what it is? She uncovered his feet. All right, there's nothing, like, remarkable about this. Like, people want to, because the Hebrew can be uncovered all the way up to his waist, and there's all kinds of ways that you could speculate about this, but I think this is a relatively simple plan that Naomi has put together for Ruth, all right? And here's my example. If you have a smartphone, and you use your smartphone as an alarm in the morning, you've got options. You can pick an alarm that's like boom, 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 or you can pick a right? And one is abrupt and aggressive and you wake up angry. But the pleasant one is just, you just wake up like, oh, I hear a faint little fairy noise in the background and it wakes me up, right? That's the difference between alarms. And in the same way, it's like, here's a guy, just the context of it again. He's been drinking, he's sleeping by his piles realistically to protect them. And now Naomi's like, I want you to go down and wake him up. So here's a guy sleeping with a gun under his pillow next to his loot. 
And if you abruptly wake him up, he's probably going to be like, I don't know, he's going to stab you, right? But if you just uncover his feet, then the cool of the air is going to get his attention. He's going to be like, why are my feet so cold? What's going on? That's weird. And then he's going to wake up and he's going to see a body next to him and then he's going to freak out. But at least he's woken up in a little bit more of a calm way before he freaks out that somebody is next to him, right? So that's a little bit the scene. So she unfolds the covers from his feet. The midnight air is going to rouse him from his sleep and then he'll realize what's going on. So verse eight, it says around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Yeah, who are you, he asked, because it's dark, right? We're used to like ambient light. They didn't have ambient light. Dark was just dark there, right? And so he says, who are you? And she says, I am your servant, Ruth. I mean, that would be a freaky scene, right? You think you're just chilling by yourself and suddenly there is a girl next to you, but it's not as freaky or as countercultural as what happens next. She says, it's me, it's Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me for you are my family redeemer. So here it is. He falls asleep. He's had some drink. He goes to bed buzzing. He wakes up cold, sees a girl. She looks at him, says, hi, it's me, Ruth, marry me. That's a freaky scene, right? It's a super freaky scene. And there's more complexity to the scene than that. So a couple of things, again, we want to know because we want to keep the context before us. First, Naomi said this, Ruth, do as I say, go unfold the stuff over his feet and wait till he tells you what to do, right? So remember that. Listen to me, do what he tells you to do. See, this leads into the second thing you want to understand. Naomi's plan was not a legal engagement. She wasn't looking for the kinsman redeemer model here. If I was blunt, it's a shotgun wedding kind of thing. She's looking at this saying, all right, here's a family member. Ruth is kind of an outsider, unwanted, not desired, is not going to be a great wife to a husband based on what we care about as a culture. But maybe this guy's willing to kind of take her in in some kind of secondary fashion, realizes she's not going to produce for him what he most wants in life, which is a son, but that's okay. Perhaps maybe they'll be intimate that night. And from their intimacy, that requires a type of marriage and they'll just marry her and it'll be that simple. So that's what Naomi's envisioning because in doing that, it secures rest for Ruth again. That's all she cares about is rest for Ruth. Pretty simple. But Ruth complicates the entire situation by bringing up this idea of a kinsman redeemer. It's going to mess up everything. Now, before we get to that, there's one last thing that I think is going to kind of burst our bubble a little bit in the story. But again, we're trying to keep the history of the story before us. And it's realistically that this man that Ruth is soliciting is already a married man with a family. Now, I know that wigs us out a little bit because we tend to read the story and say, well, no, this is one of those older eligible bachelors. We know he's older in verse 10. He says, I'm an older guy, right? So we go, he's an older eligible bachelor. Ruth sees it. This is a beautiful thing. It's always been designed and he waited all of this time to have Ruth as his wife. But that's realistically not kind of the cultural setting because again, in that cultural setting, what we know is he's been called a virtuous man or a man of virtue. We saw that in chapter two, verse one. And that idea in his culture meant he had sons. He was well-respected in the community. If you didn't have sons, you were not respected in an honor-shame culture like Israel at the time of the end of the judges. That's not the way it worked. And so realistically, he's 
got a wife. He's got sons. He's well-to-do within the city. That's why everybody respects him. And Ruth is sort of soliciting maybe a number two wife spot or a number three wife spot. She can't bring sons because she is barren as far as she knows. But perhaps maybe this will all work out for reasons that she has in her mind. Now, I know some of us look at that and go, no, I don't like that. Maybe he was a widower. And I go, maybe he was. I, I don't really know. I know that the other characters are highlighted as being those who are widows, but it doesn't say that he was a widower, so we don't really know. But even if he is married, a couple of things about that that are important. First of all, it's important to realize that that was just the culture. That's just the way it worked. Because David had more than one wife. Solomon had more than one wife. Abraham had more than one wife. That was just a common occurrence for the biblical characters to have more than one wife. The thing that perhaps we can see the beauty of charity and grace and giving in the context of that for their culture was this idea that for a man to marry a woman who couldn't produce him sons, as they understood it, uh, was then a charity. You were simply going to take her on your life and provide for her, even though she was not going to then produce things for you. That would have been seen as a pretty remarkable feat in and of itself, and in that it would have secured Ruth the rest that Naomi seeks. So that's kind of your historical picture in all of that. Now, is it messy? Absolutely. That's why I said I love the story because it's so absolutely messy. But it's highlighting the self-giving of everybody involved. So what does Boaz think about all of this? Verse 10. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. You are showing even more family loyalty. I want you to keep that in mind. Highlight that, mark that, whatever else. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich nor poor. So he says, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. Now, why does Boaz think she is virtuous? Because here's what's cool. Back in chapter two, verse one, when I noted that he was somebody that was well-known and virtuous in the community, he uses the exact same word. He says, the whole town looks at you and sees you in the same light that they see me. In the same way they would elevate my character, they elevate your character. So the question is, how exactly is Ruth virtuous and why is Boaz so floored by her virtue? Now, here's where you're gonna have to stick with me for a minute because this is gonna be really nuanced right? But I think he gets to the core of Ruth. So Naomi seeks rest for Ruth out of Hesed. Because here's the thing, Naomi knows that once Ruth departs from her, she's on her own. She's going to be all by herself as an older woman with nobody to care for. The only food that Naomi currently has is because Ruth has been going into the fields and gleaning and receiving and bringing home to her. But Naomi's basically like, Ruth, I so love you. I will sacrifice my good for your good. That's Hesed, right? I'm looking out for you more than I'm looking out for me. So that's what Naomi's been doing. Now, Ruth, she has the same Hesed in play in her life. And she is not concerned about her receiving her own rest. She is not worried about finding a husband so she can secure her future. If she did, all she would have had to do that night is say, hey, Boaz, I'm cold. Keep me warm. End of story. They will get married the next morning and it's done. And Naomi's on her own and Ruth will be married off and she'll have security. But that's not what she does. She appeals to these laws, this kinsman redeemer because she is concerned for the future of Naomi. Naomi's life is connected to her land and to her name legacy. 
We learned that back in chapter one. So her value as a woman was connected to what do you have and who are you married to? And did you have sons that carry the name forward and secure the land that your family owns? So if you didn't secure the land and you didn't secure the name, you were a zero in that society. And Ruth isn't gonna let that happen. So she goes to Boaz and goes off the script completely because remember, she was just supposed to do whatever Boaz says. She just swipes that to the side, says, no, I'm gonna pursue this other weird legal thing that secures land and name for Naomi, even at the cost of myself. I'm gonna risk everything for this woman who I pledge myself to that I would love no matter what. And so this idea that she pitches of the kinsman redeemer is this law that's in Deuteronomy that says, if you have a family member who has to sell off their property because they're in a bad place or in tough straits, another family member steps in and they purchase that property so the property stays in the name of the family. That's the kinsman redeemer law. And with that property is also the property of the wife involved with the property. I mean, that's again, the tragic reality of a patriarchal culture. That was just what it was. And so it's linked to that. But this also gets into the Leverite law. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago where the, the, a, a man marries a woman and that man dies before he has sons. The brother of the man marries the wife who's now a widow and the first son that they produce is the heir to the dead brother's estate, right? That's the Leverite law. So you have these two laws in play simultaneously. And Ruth's proposal to Boaz is, hey, Boaz, we need to figure out a way to honor those two laws so that we can honor Naomi. Will you partner with me in that process to serve her and honor her, to, to continue a legacy for her in a way that is, that is noble and caring and loving? See, that is, that is hesed. And that is virtue. And Boaz knows it. So when he sees what Ruth is doing and he hears her proposal and he says, wow, you are loyal to your family. He's blown away by this. This is just not the way people do things. And so he's like, that is a virtue so profound. Everybody in town should recognize how powerful that is. See, why I love it is that it reminds me a lot of Jesus. His encouragement to love your neighbor, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, Right? And so, while this started off with looking for love in all of the wrong places, it really leads to number two, displaying true love in the deepest way. In the deepest way. And the deepest form of love is sometimes not love as pursued in the letter of the law, but love pursued in the spirit of the law. Because if you go back to chapter one, the letter of the law was violated as soon as a good Jewish boy decided to marry a Moabite girl. Law broken, Right? Law was off the rails, but there was this spirit of the law in Ruth that even though she was a Moabite, she had this tenderness to God in ways that even maybe the Israelites around her did not. And so in the spirit of the law, she pledges herself to Naomi. And in the spirit of the law, she sacrifices for Naomi. In the spirit of the law, she's trying to secure virtue and valor and dignity again for Naomi. And then Boaz, in the spirit of the law, even though all he had to do is just make sure the corners of his field were left for the poor, he feeds these two women. He goes way out of his way above the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. It's pretty radical. But if you really distill the story down even more, there is a complete reversal of everything that culture understood in the story. In fact, Andre Lecour, 
who wrote a commentary on the book of Ruth, said it this way. Boaz, says Naomi, will tell Ruth what to do. And Ruth will do what her mother-in-law, Naomi, tells her to do. But in a strange twist, Ruth is now the central agent of all the events in the story. The older generations rely on the younger. The one of higher social status relies on the lower. The stronger of the world relies on the weaker. The masculine authority depends on the feminine wisdom. In Ruth chapter two, Boaz was a man of virtue, but now he recognizes Ruth, a woman, a Moabite, a poor individual who was barren. She is the one of true virtue. Such a reversal of values is at the very core of this subversive. See, Ruth embodies the very upside down and backwards nature of the kingdom itself. And so the spirit of the law is at work and it's going to have to work even more because the problem is the letter of the law is going to run aground on the spirit of the law and the story. Here's why. First of all, Boaz is not the next brother in line behind Elimelech. So this idea of the Leverite law in the letter of the law can't apply because he's just not the next guy in line. It's going to be problematic. So the Leverite law now has a problem. But it's not the only problem. There's also the kinsman redeemer problem. Verse 12. He says, well, while it's true that I'm one of your family redeemers, there is another man dun, 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 who is more closely related to you than I am. So stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you, very well. Let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, not even himself, he's not swearing on himself, he's swearing on the Lord. As surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. Now again, if this was just an average marriage, man, they would be married by morning and a story be done. But now there is a legal process and Boaz is a man of nobility and he will honor the process legally and he will do what he can in the process of that. So it says, Ruth lay down at Boaz's feet until morning, but she got up before the light was enough so that people would not recognize them. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. And he measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. And then he returned, and then he returned into town. Now this idea of not letting anybody know a woman was there is because if a woman was there, it would have been for more nefarious reasons and he doesn't want to undermine her character because there is another kinsman redeemer that might be willing to marry her. But if the perception is, oh, she's just a Moabite prostitute, the game's off, right? For everybody. He knows that. So he says, just secretly go back before it's light. But I love this because apparently Ruth was into CrossFit because he put 60 to 100 pounds of barley on her back, right? And not like a backpack. It's like, hey, let's lay out your cloak. Let's bundle it up like a Santa Claus bag. Now put this on your back and go back to your mother-in-law. Like, man, Ruth is strong in spirit and apparently just physically just tough, right? And so she head home, heads home. It says, and when Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she asked her, what happened, my daughter? So Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Here's what I really appreciate about this. Again, keep your life culture before you. 10 years of famine. 
Boaz has consistently now for months said, Ruth, you can keep taking food. You can keep taking food. You can keep taking food. Now he's got his piles of, of different grains all before him, and he's still giving away, giving away to these people that culture would have said are nothings and nobodies without sons. I mean, Boaz displays a unique type of grace and love and kindness in these conditions. And so mother and daughter-in-law are talking about everything that happened. Yes, I went there and I did what you said and I pulled down the thing from his feet and ooh, I don't like feet, but I did it anyway. Whatever they said, I don't know what they said. But then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter. Wait until we hear what happens because this man won't rest until he settled things today. I love this because again, Ruth, or rather Naomi was seeking rest for Ruth and Ruth was seeking value for Naomi. And now both the rest of Ruth and the value of Naomi is in the hands of Boaz who won't rest until rest and value are anchored. So fantastic. See, that's the stuff of hesed. That is the stuff where if we're willing to be used by God, God will use us in incredible ways if we do it according to his heart and his rules. The spirit of the law in love. Now, in a bittersweet sort of way, here is the last thing I want to highlight, and that is that these words at the end of chapter 3 are the last words we will ever read of the discussions between Ruth and Naomi. We have one more chapter in the book, but we never see what they talk about. We don't see their interactions as a mother and daughter-in-law. And to be honest, it makes me a little sad. Like I've, I've bonded with these people and their conversations and their aching and their pain and their care for one another. But what I love is that this whole story, story started with a woman who was empty and bitter. And now as we close out chapter three, her cupboards are full, her future is brighter, her hopes are alive. And they're both finding rest in what God is gonna do with this potential kinsman redeemer. And what I love about it is that God uses the most unlikely of people to flip the script. A poor, barren, outsider to change everything. And not just change everything in the story, but as we will see next week, it was this very woman that changed everything about the world we know today. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for messy stories. I thank you for messy people. And I thank you that you love to use messy people to execute your story. So often we look at things and we want perfect conditions and perfect situations where everybody just fulfills all of the intended roles perfectly. And yet a story like Ruth shows how you use the awkward, the unfair, the broken, the unlikely to do pretty incredible things. And so I pray that we will learn from that. We will want to be the kinds of people that bring hesed, that bring comfort, ease, and care when things are broken and unfair in all the facets and forms that it comes. And so we ask that you teach us and use us. May more than us saying, God, when are you going to do a thing in my life that our attitude would be, God, how can I do a thing through my life for you, for somebody else that needs it? May we be like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz because they were like you. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.